team. So I'll be leading us in our time in the Word today. Um, I'm not Rob Campbell. I'm not the voice that we all apparently need to hear, but um, <laughs> hopefully I can tide us over for a week until we get to Rob Campbell. So, uh, all right. Um, so our passage this morning is going to be from the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Uh, if you're using the Blue Bibles, it's on page 863, our passage. So the main thing we're looking at is Luke uh, chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. And I'm actually going to read a little bit first, uh, starting in verse 17, which is on the page right before it. And so I'm going to read these words, and then we're going to have a time of reflection on them. So Luke chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 17 to 20. And he, that's Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now to verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's reflect on these words for a couple minutes. Let's pray to open our time. Lord Jesus, you give us a challenge, a sobering challenge in this passage. You looked at people who were close to you and you asked, do we really have the relationship that you act like we have or that you think we have? And you said this not uh, out of anger or offense, but you, you give this challenge, as we'll see, as an act of love. And so I pray today that uh, wherever we're coming from, whether we're coming as people who uh, consider ourselves your followers or people who are maybe vaguely curious about you or just, who just got at, dragged here by a friend or family, I pray that we would see these words for what they are. I pray that we would feel the weight of this challenge. And I pray that you would use it to lead us where you want us to go 
from it. Pray this in your name. Amen. So I had a roommate in college for, I think it was a year, who had terrible sleeping habits, even by college student standards. All right? Mine weren't great, um, but he got to a point where he was on the verge of failing several of his morning classes just from sleeping in, just from missing them. No reason at all. Grades were fine, just missing the classes. And, um, th- but the thing was that he would ask me to wake him up in the mornings. We got to this point, but then he would lie to me while he was still asleep, tell me his class was canceled. I'd leave, he'd miss class, and then he'd be like, dude, what happened? Why didn't you wake me up? And I was like, you told me your class was canceled. So it got to the point where finally he gave me permission to pour water on him because it was the only thing that would actually wake him up and get him to class. And I did it more than once because I loved him. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, so he's one of my best friends. Uh, he's a healthy, functioning adult now, so he's fine. Um, but uh, So this passage, which comes at the end of this vision statement that Jesus gives to his disciples, is kind of like a bucket of cold water to the face. So like we saw in verses 17 through 20 when we read, there's this big crowd of people who are listening to Jesus, and many of those folks are just kind of, you know, like generally interested in him. You know, he's provided some healings. They've heard he's done some miracles. They've heard good things, and so they're curious. They're checking it out. But he's really looking, like we saw in verse 20, at his disciples. So he's looking at kind of this inner circle of people who are standing in the right place, so to speak. They're, they're sitting on the front row. They're calling him the right name. And he closes this vision statement with this slap in the face. You might think that he would say, you know, you've seen some of my miracles. There's a lot more to come. This is going to be like a big party. Let's go. Or he can kind of gather his people around and say, you're the good ones. You know, I'm so proud of you for being in the inner circle. But instead, he says, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? Why do you say that you're following me, but you live in a completely different way? What's the misalignment here? He destabilizes them. It feels destabilizing to hear it, and that's what he wants. He takes his own little religious in crowd, and he unsettles them. Now, there are at least two reasons why we might throw water in someone's face. Uh, We might do it because we hate them, and we want to tick them off. Maybe he just wanted to blow the crowd away and start fresh. Or we might do it, like I had to do it for my roommate, because they're asleep, and they're in danger, actually, if they don't wake up. Jesus loves his disciples enough to shock them, because he knows that they can be in the right place, near the right person, talking the right language, and actually completely miss the point be spiritually asleep and in danger. So if we apply that today, you can be in the church. You can be the member of the church. You can know the right things to say. You can serve. You can have the reputation of being a Christian, which maybe doesn't have you know, the same honor it had a generation ago, but it's, it's not nothing in a lot of people's eyes. But you can be spiritually asleep and in grave spiritual danger. Jesus wants all of us, you, me, to wake up, to be sure that we're paying attention. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this challenge. We're going to look at the call of the challenge, what he's calling his people to wake up and be sure that they're doing. We're going to look at the stakes of his challenge, at at what's the cost, what are we looking at here. And then we're going to consider what this means for us today right now. And so first, what's the call? What's Jesus want us to do? 
Now, this is very difficult. You have to kind of have some technical Greek knowledge here, so I'm going to do my best to walk through these four verses. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Verse 47, everyone who hears my words and does them. Verse 49, the one who hears my words and does not do them. So when I employ my years of seminary training and all the language study, and you know, I can tell you safely that Jesus wants us to do his words. <laughs> Very simple. You yeah, know, really complicated there. Um, so since today is Super Bowl Sunday, uh, I'm going to honor that by giving an illustration from the Disney children's musical Aladdin for us. Um, so uh, for the six of you who haven't seen the movie Aladdin, uh, don't worry. The important part is that there's a scene where Aladdin, uh, who has sort of wished that a genie would make him into a prince, he flies up to the palace where Princess Jasmine, who he's in love with, is uh, staying, sort of like this huge porch in the back of her stone palace. And he invites her to join him on a magic carpet ride. He's standing on you know, the magic carpet. And he holds out his hand, and he asks her a question. Do you trust me? Now, obviously, he's not just asking for a verbal affirmation that she trusts him. She might say, of course I trust you while I'm standing on this stone porch. Um, I believe that carpet will hold me. I genuinely think you're a trustworthy person, and this ride sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. He says, do you trust me? She says, no, I'm staying on the porch. <laughs> Does she really trust him? She really trusts him. She shows that she trusts him by stepping off of where she is onto where he is, and it is a great, it's a wonderful experience if you haven't seen the movie. So, uh, so things are going. It's a great, happy ending. Um, but uh, so Jesus isn't arbitrarily saying, you've got to obey me. He's not just laying down rules like some cosmic teacher. He's saying, are you building your life on the foundation of my words? Are you building them on something else? Are you standing with me? Are you still standing on that porch over there? no matter how close you are to me and what you're saying about my words. All through the book of Luke, this is the challenge that Jesus offers. And in fact, it's the challenge that he lives. Do I trust the word of God or the words of Jesus enough to step off of my own foundation onto that one? So back in Luke 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness, after 40 days of fasting, he's tempted three times to change foundations to step off of what God has laid for him onto something that's going to be much more comfortable and easy for him in the short term. Um, in Luke 5, when he, Jesus steps onto Peter's boat and he says, hey, let's go out and let's drop the nets you just cleaned into the water where your professional judgment suggests there are no fish. And he's asking Peter to step onto his foundation, to trust him. When Jesus eats in the company of tax collectors who are seen as Jewish traitors to the Jewish people, the Pharisees are offended because Jesus isn't building on the foundation of their self-righteousness like he's supposed to. He says, you're supposed to be self-righteous like the rest of us. Why are you eating with them? He's on a different foundation. And that's all before this text. That was three examples pulled out of like two chapters before we even get here. So we spent the last three weeks studying Jesus' command be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful, which Paul, our pastor Paul, called the one play that Jesus wants us to run again and again and again in our relationship with others. That's why we spent three weeks on it. Because it is really hard to live on a foundation of giving mercy to people, especially to people who wrong us, who take advantage of us or abuse us. It is really easy 
to stand close to Jesus and call him Lord and think that gives us the right to be merciless to others. In the same way, it can be easy to stand close to Jesus, call him the right things, and say that we trust him, but actually be building our lives on a different foundation. The last few years have seen huge scandals break out in the theologically orthodox world. You know, not out there, but in here, so to speak, with people who share a lot of our same beliefs, where people who are saying the right things and standing in the right places had their lives exposed as being built on a completely different foundation. So Mark Driscoll is a megachurch pastor in Seattle, used his pastorate to further his own ego and abuse the people who were under him. Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, um, you know, used the trust that he had earned to abuse women, not just once or twice, but serially. So Jesus is asking, are you going to try to use me for something on your own foundation? Am I going to be a block that you build your idea of a good life on? Are you going to obey my words and let me be the foundation? So what Jesus wants for us is to always be asking this question, whose words am I standing on? Not just what do I like or say I like or what do people think about me, but whose words am I standing on? Whose words define my deepest choices? This is a call for reflection and also a call to community. So we have, we just practice confession in our community groups. We practice something similar sometimes where we open our lives to other people because we know that we can deceive ourselves. We say, do I have blind spots that someone else can speak into? Do I have things going on in my life that's actually me trying to build on, kind of creep out onto a different foundation that someone can call me back from and pull me back from? So this is a call to reflect. And it's a spirit that David captures in Psalm 139. At the end, he writes this prayer. He writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus wants us to be inviting God to search our hearts through his word, through prayer, through his people, and test ourselves and let God test us to see what our foundation really is. Are we really building on his word with our lives, with our actions, what we do? Are they reflecting something different? So that's the call. Now the stakes. Why is this such a huge deal? So Jesus illustrates this, the seriousness of it, with a parable about two houses built on two different foundations. What the houses have in common is that they both endure storms. Now, I know this is hard to imagine in a landlocked city like Wilmington, but there are, in fact, storms that cause extreme winds and high waters that threaten the integrity of the buildings that are caught in said storms. So we're going to have to stretch our imaginations here a little bit, right? Um, no, for those of you who are natives, there should probably be like a trigger warning over this parable. So you go back to a dark place. Um, when we were house hunting, we saw one house that was a good house that was way below the expected price range. When we saw photos of the garage on Zillow, and you could see the flood line five feet above, you know, like the ground. And uh, the flood insurance was so high that it was basically the insurance company saying, like, the odds of this happening again are roughly 100%. So we're going to go ahead and work that into, you know, what you'll be paying for flood insurance. Um, 
That's not where we live. So we went, we went a different route. So both of these houses experience storms. There's not one built high and dry that doesn't experience storms. It's sort of smooth sailing its whole life. They both are in flood zones. So one thing Jesus is saying here is that your life, every life, is going to experience storms. It's going to face circumstances that feel like a hurricane tearing at the walls and as floodwaters pounding at your foundation. I preached on storms like two or three of my sermons ago, so I hope this isn't a sign that God is preparing me for something. But a storm is being under the pressure, under the force of something much bigger than you. The storm might be a health crisis, a diagnosis that just upends your expectation for your life. It could be a financial uh, crisis, like a job loss. Maybe it's a relational loss or betrayal, or even a moral crisis, a storm of your own making, something you've done to yourself. And a storm, Jesus says in this parable, it exposes the foundation of your life. It hammers the things that seem like they can hold weight when conditions are easy. It's like in the three little pigs. You know, a house of straw stands up perfectly well in normal conditions, but when a wolf huffs and puffs and blows on it, as everyone knows wolves do, um, you know, kaput, it's gone. Um, we have little kids who so read this story a lot, and none of them have asked about that yet, so um, we'll see where that comes. Uh, but, but seriously, this applies to us on two levels. So the first level is meaningful even if you're, you don't think you believe everything Christianity teaches. Uh, it's the level that suffering or storms are an existential crisis that tests the foundation of your life. So Tim Keller, who's a retired pastor in New York City, says somewhere that the ultimate test of any account of meaning and purpose in the world is how it handles suffering is what you think makes your life meaningful, able to be taken away by suffering? Are you able to be reset to a place where you don't know how to live anymore? So if meaning comes through having a successful career, what happens if that career gets taken away? Or if you think meaning comes from having the right kind of family, what happens if the worst comes? Your spouse betrays you. You struggle with infertility. I don't say these things flippantly because Jesus doesn't say these things flippantly. His words take us into deep water here. We are going to suffer in this world. We're going to suffer loss or betrayal, financial difficulties. And at the end of, every, of time, even if we make it through all those things, we're still going to experience the decline of our health and ultimately death. We are going to enter a storm. And one question that suffering forces us to ask is, can I lose what I think I'm building on and still have a meaningful life? There's a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a, a speaker and an author. Um, she was paralyzed from the neck down in a swimming accident when she was 19, from the neck down. She said this in a radio program. She said, after I left college, when all of my friends were getting married, I looked down at my wheelchair and I felt lost. I was torn between the world of my friends going to college and the world of people back at the hospital. For all of my life, I'd been on my feet, active and athletic, but now I was facing life paralyzed in a wheelchair. My identity was wrapped up in the world I had lost, and I remember crying to my sister, Jay, I don't know who I am. That's an existential crisis. I lose something so precious to me I don't know who I am when it's gone. 
The existential horizon is one way to apply Jesus' warning. Am I building my life on something that's fragile? Am I choosing as a foundation something that can be taken away by forces within this world so that I don't know how my life can be meaningful anymore? I won't know who I am. But that question actually leads us to what Jesus really has in mind here, which isn't the existential crisis of storms in this life. It's the eternal crisis of what's called the final judgment. In the version of the sermon recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then he goes on to the two houses parable. So it's the same warning, but with this extra warning, on that day is the focus. On that day, he says, many are going to hold up their resume of spiritual activities to me and say, I was there. I was saying the right things. I was doing the right things. He says, I will never knew you. Depart from me. He's alluding to what Christianity calls the last judgment. Most Jews in his time believed in this too, um, which is why he doesn't spend much time on it. Um, It's something we struggle with culturally, so it's worth sitting with for a second. Christianity teaches that humans were created to be immortal. And we would point to the ache that all of us have for eternity and transcendence, that actually you can look all around the world at religions and cultures and arts and works and see that it's not, uh, you know, like a, a late invention. It's something that's pretty much universal to life, that we long for something greater than this existence itself. And we would say that's evidence that it's something we're made with. C.S. Lewis writes that uh, physical hunger doesn't mean we're going to get something to eat, but it means there is such a thing as something to eat that will satisfy that hunger. In the same way, the spiritual hunger for eternity, uh, for the eternal, we would say the love of God, uh, means, implies that there is such a thing that we can actually receive. This transcendent appetite can be satisfied. Jesus is saying that the last judgment is going to expose what was really the foundation of your life. The person that in the end, you really were. Not who people thought you were, not who you deceived yourself into thinking you were, who your choices show you to be. Were you someone who trusted him in the big decisions and the little ones, and it was easy when it hurt? Or were you someone who was maybe close to him, but who really lived for your own comfort, reputation, or pleasure? C.S. Lewis wrote uh, this in a sermon called The Weight of Glory. He said, in the end, that face, which is the delight or terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Who God knows you are. So the foundation that he knows that you're building on is the most important thing in this life. It determines not just how well you handle existential crises in this life. It determines what happens to you afterward. Whether you're someone that God welcomes or rejects in eternity. So what does Jesus want us to do with this? This is where we'll close. Does Jesus want us to just throw up our hands and give up because this is impossible? 
Does he want us to buckle down and try really hard to be really good? And the answer, in fact, is kind of both. On the one hand, Jesus is deadly serious about these things. As he says, we are to love Yahweh, the true God, with all our hearts and souls and minds and strengths, and to love our neighbor with every bit of concern that we have for ourselves. His ideal is absolute, and facing that honesty will make any reasonably self-aware person desperate. Now, early in his life, on the other hand, he's beginning to teach and heal publicly, and John the Baptist sees him and calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What we see unfold through Jesus' ministry as he lives and as he dies crucified and then as he rises again three days later is that uh, Jesus drew to himself people who were that kind of desperate. Prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, people who had no recourse or hope in the world were drawn to him, not repelled by his message. You might think they would be the last people who would want to be close to him, but something about his life, he extended grace in his actual actions toward people. And so what we see is, uh, you know, Jesus lived in a way that showed extreme radical grace, even as he also lived and taught in a way that showed extreme radical confidence in his own truth. He spoke with the authority of God, but as John said, he died as a sacrificial lamb. What Christianity teaches is that that's because he was completely divine. In fact, he was God made flesh. And at the exact same time, he was completely and fully a human being. So he lived the perfect sinless life that his teaching demanded. He didn't just hold that ideal up. He fulfilled it to a T. A perfect, sinless, complete, total obedience life. And at the same time, he died as a sacrifice for our sins to cover for the ways that we as human beings try to build on foundations other than him. He carried our sin out of his undeserved grace. So when we really trust him, we commit to obeying his ideals like we've been talking about. We commit to running the plays he has us run. But at the same time, we commit to stepping on the foundation that he has laid for us because we can't lay that foundation for ourselves. We strive to obey him on the foundation of his grace, not in the hope that one day we'll impress him enough to be pulled onto that foundation. I mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata earlier. So after describing that existential struggle of losing her identity, she quotes from the book of Colossians chapter 3, which I read from after the confession, and I'll, I'll read that verse in another one. Paul writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Hoping in Christ is dying to our own ideas of the good life and choosing his. But because he is God and because he is the lamb that takes away sin, trusting him doesn't just mean dying. It means having our life hidden in his by faith so that when he appears in the last judgment, the foundation that we're standing on isn't the foundation of ways that we built up a resume that could impress him. It's the foundation of we trusted in him and stood on the foundation that he laid for us. That's what it means ultimately 
to keep his words. Let's pray. Jesus, this passage unbalances us. It destabilizes us because knowing the right words, being in the right places are not guarantees that you actually know us. They're not guarantees that we're actually building on the right foundation. So I pray for all of us, you would give us clarity about if there are, like David said in the psalm, grievous ways in us that need to be let go of, that we need to step off of so we can stand more firmly on you. I pray you would help us find those things. And I pray that we could turn to you in trust, knowing that you have a way that you want us to live, but you also give us a hope that you have lived the way we were supposed to live. And I pray that you would bring us to the foundation of your grace. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us for worship.